Pixel Field Podcast Episode 9. Okay, welcome everybody to uh, probably, most probably, the very final episode of 2019 of the Pixel Field Podcast. My name is Marek Hasha and I will be your host. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming Craig Zingerlein. Um, and uh, Craig is an entrepreneur. He is the chief product officer for Sandbox. And he is also an author on uh, growth hacking, right? Um, so welcome, Craig. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate you uh, spending some time with me today. Great. Uh, let's start with the topic that you were uh, busy with as an author. And that's uh, growth hacking, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, to me, growth hacking is very interesting. Well, for me, it's more of a buzzword because I don't really understand the difference between maybe growth hacking and performance marketing or online marketing as the broader term. So could you maybe help me make a distinction between growth hacking and uh, yeah, just yeah, online sure. marketing? I think it's um, unfortunately growth hacking became the like the, the key terminology for what really uh, amounts to kind of a combination of performance marketing um, plus all of the other things that good marketing and product teams really should be doing, which is really driving growth. So um, I think, uh, you know, I love the term growth because it, um, it focuses on growing something, which I think every company needs to do. But I hate the word hacking because it just has a negative connotation. Um, and so growth hacking, yeah, I think it's, it's a bit buzzy. Um, I think the, you know, I think if you ask people what growth hacking is, they'll, there's many different answers, but I think the general consensus is that it's really, um, kind of the effort to quickly grow a startup, um, primarily through means that might be untraditional or unconventional. And so, you know, if you Google growth hacking, you're going to likely come up with, um, how Uber or Airbnb or Dropbox quote unquote hacked growth. Um, Unfortunately, the reality is, is even in high growth startups, the, uh, the, the hacking part of the process, maybe it wasn't even really hacking. Maybe there were tips and tricks that they can share that really drew, um, drove growth kind of more explosively than not. Um, but in most cases with most normal companies, most, most growth startups, um, you know, it's a much longer process. So I think the, you know, what I don't like about the term uh, growth hacking is that it really it kind of makes you feel like there's a shortcut to growing a company. And really there's no shortcut. It's just hard work, uh, luck and perseverance. <laughs> All right, nice. So that's how I look at it. So, uh, the, so what's the essence of growth hacking or what's the main objective? Is it the increasing website traffic or app user base as, as uh, early as possible in the, in the roadmap of the startup or. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think that, um, if we take a broader view of just growth in general, and if we focus less on on the growth hacking terminology, I think the, the focus of growth is really to uh, to help connect value between the product or the service that the company is offering to customers, buyers, you know, all the people that are within that that customer journey. But I also think that um, growth and growth teams also will kind of look at and own company core metrics. So growth really works both ways. Whereas, um, you know, like a product team, for example, might only be focused on uh, performance metrics within the product. Growth actually makes sure that the company is growing, that customers are getting value, and that the company is getting value back from those customers, either in the form of 
signups or revenue or retention metrics, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think um, the overall strategy is to help startups uh, increase the, you know, their, their positive metrics, the things that are really important to them. Maybe it's mm-hmm. OKRs and KPIs or some other form of metrics and looking at kind of a, you know, ideally looking at a holistic approach to increasing those over time. Okay. Well, to, I studied marketing at university. So to me, it, it very much sounds like marketing, to be honest, uh, this definition. Yes. Um, but so maybe it's, the distinction will become a bit more clear uh, with some of the strategies. So could we discuss those? Maybe according to you, yeah. what are the most useful strategies for growth hacking right now for different types of uh, projects? Yeah, and so I think I think your observation is correct that this this kind of falls within within marketing. Um, you know, I think there's again kind of going from a slightly higher level when you look at when you look at marketing in general uh, in kind of the area that marketing typically owns. It's it's generally just getting people aware of and over to the product. So that encapsulates brand awareness and. Um, you know, brand strategy all the way down to kind of nitty gritty performance marketing. But marketing traditionally has ended at the point where customers kind of hit the product and, and start experiencing value from the product. And, you know, in the last five or 10 years, maybe product marketing uh, is, you know, embedded within the product itself. Um, and then, you know, traditionally, product teams will own kind of the user flow from the from the point of acquisition and beyond. And so marketing, you know, marketing and product, there, there often has been this kind of like fine line between the two um, uh, areas of focus. Where I think growth is interesting is that it actually encapsulates both. And so you could be a growth marketer working on uh, on brand marketing and performance marketing exclusively, or you could be a growth person kind of working on performance marketing plus retention and activation strategies, or you may be a product manager who's growth focused, who's not really doing acquisition, but might be working on activation and retention driving mm-hmm. activities. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think when, um, you know, the, the pirate metric nomenclature came out uh, a while ago, and I think it, it's a pretty good way to look at what the focus areas of growth really are. And, and I, I don't tend to bifurcate, um, marketing and growth and, and really even product. I think that there's, uh, if anything, there's a convergence of those three kind of different types of skill sets where to have a really strong product team, you really need to be embedded with uh, with marketing and, and to be a strong marketing team, you need to be embedded with product and kind of what's happening with the product. So uh, the key areas I think of focus are, you know, one way to look at it at least is in, in terms of the pirate metrics. So uh, awareness or acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, and referral. Okay. Um, and that's a pretty well-known model. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think there's there's some movements as of late to kind of work around that model a little bit. But I actually think, you know, if, if you look at kind of the core drivers of growth, it generally does fall within one of those buckets. Okay. So, but that in your own projects, do you still... Uh, use this model or do you think it's a bit obsolete and uh, you have your own uh, strategies? I think that, I think that there are, um, I think that there are folks trying to 
come up with new nomenclature and things like that to explain how growth teams operate. But, but I actually think underlying the underlying model is still strong. Um, so, you know, when you, when you hear things like um, product led growth or performance marketing or activation strategy, I mean, to me, those are all very, uh, you know, those are all um, uh, skill set strategies, tactics, frameworks that are built within the growth model. Uh, and so, I think the the pirate nomenclature, um, you know, it it's I wouldn't say it's obsolete. I think some of the some of the terminology is changing a little bit. But really, if you look at what are you doing every day as a growth person, it's probably either getting people aware of the site or the app, driving people through the flow of the app, trying to keep them to stick around, trying to drive revenue from it, or trying to get them to tell more people about it. And um, and so I think that you know even product led growth where you're you know, where you're hopefully having the product do a lot of the, the work for you, uh, it still falls within this model because somebody still has to think about what that activation strategy is through product-led growth, right? Like the product will hopefully help grow itself, but it's certainly not going to grow itself in a vacuum. Somebody like a human has to think through the, you know, the loop that you're going to create there to connect value to whatever group of people is going to experience that product. Yeah. And so, I don't think it's actually obsolete. I think it's, you know, the, the terminology may change, but it's really those key areas of focus um, are still really important. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe walk us through the model with um, with like a simple example? Let's, let, let's uh, think of, um, let's say, an app which allows people sure. to buy tickets for various cultural events. Sure. Yeah. Um, or I could even I could even use Sandbox, which is a which is an app that basically enables um, uh, supporters of a military audience to um, transactionally buy letters to send to uh, to um, future active recruit uh, future active duty recruits who are at boot camp. Okay. Um, and so yeah. So basically, um, there's top of funnel. So top of funnel is how do you drive awareness of your brand? And so for us or for this hypothetical ticketing company, you know, you're going to you're going to have um, brand advertising that's out there. Um, there's obviously going to be some word of mouth once you get to some level of scale. But in the early days, you're probably talking about your product, or your property, you're putting it out there. Maybe you're spending a little bit of money on um, on brand marketing. And so at the really, really top, you know, top of funnel, it's um, it's running ads, it's building a content strategy, it's going out and talking about your product to as many people as, as will listen to you and you start to drive some awareness. Um, when you get a little bit more sophisticated, you'll actually start to break down that um, awareness and acquisition model into different buckets. So for example, you might have a brand strategy that says, we're just going to put our company logo out into you know Facebook and Instagram so that there's repeat exposure to potential buyers. Um, and then we're going to put some calls to action out. One of the things that we'll do is we'll, you know, we'll put our brand level marketing out and then we'll put what we call uh, acquisition based marketing within the performance marketing sphere. We'll put that out into Facebook and Instagram. And these might be more call to action based advertisements that say, hey, come check out this definitive guide to, you know, getting to boot camp graduation, for example, mm -hmm. or in the case of your, you know, your local ticket app, it might be. Um, come check out the wonderful experiences you can have by visiting City X, right? Yeah. And then that, and then from there, um, we'll use the you know use the platforms with pixels and things like that to be able to remarket or retarget those uh, site visitors or those app visitors with 
with much more direct messaging. So if we know that somebody's come and visited us five times, um, but they haven't yet purchased, um, we start to get a sense of kind of what their behavior may be based on what our historical data shows. Mm -hmm. So with our, with our app, um, you know, if somebody comes in and, uh, you know, and, and visits a couple times, and then we know that they've got somebody who's going to boot camp, there's a high probability that they're going to buy a letter, which is what we sell within our app. There's a high probability that they'll buy within 24 or 48 hours. Okay. Um, and that's activation. That that's activation. Yeah. And so, so then what we're doing is, um, you know, we're, we're pushing them. I mean, it's kind of activation and revenue driving, right? Because at that point, when they, uh, when they see an ad in Facebook, it may be, it may be really geared towards purchasing a letter to send. Right. Whereas before they may have only seen some of our brand level marketing or some of our messaging that's much more driven from a content strategy. So you could be a lot more direct with that activation or, or revenue driving strategy. Um, and we'll, of course, we'll use remarketing and things like that to to kind of execute on that. And then once they purchase um, or even before they purchase, we've got different strategies that we'll use around discounting and using promo codes and things like that. So if we know that somebody has come in a few times and has browsed and they've got somebody that's at bootcamp, but they haven't yet purchased, we know that after X number of days, it's unlikely that they're ever going to purchase. So for us, that's a great opportunity to actually come in with a discount code and really try to incentivize them to use the product and to spend a little bit of money. And then they get a lot of value back once they go through that mm -hmm. process. So they're more likely to purchase again. And that's where the activation and our content strategy and our email drip campaigns. And we use, you know, uh, you know, push notifications and um, in-app messaging and all of those different tactics that we use are trying to both add value to that user's user flow and their experience. It might be content about, you know, in our case, um, what their recruit who's at bootcamp is going through every day. You know, it's really hard going through bootcamps, a really, really challenging time of their life. So we're able to provide content to that supporter, kind of talking about the day in the life a little bit because we're subject matter experts yeah. there. And then that gets them more activated and it gets them to go through that purchase flow again. So we build these loops within the, within the system mm -hmm. that are content-based, that are activation-based, that kind of drive that user through that process. All right. So it, it's basically about bringing as many people, as many potential customers into the funnel and then trying to make the most out of them. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's about yeah, it's about that, and it's about getting better and better at, at finding the right people to get into the okay. funnel. And you know, one of the things that we found is that um, you, you know, it's like with um, with with any revenue driven model, which most models are, if it's a transactional element and it's not something that somebody does, you know, every day, three hundred sixty five days a year, then you need to start figuring out how do you get in front of that person with the right message to keep them engaged and active and thinking about your product. Um, and so, you know, a great example is, um, is business travel. You know, I was, I ran growth at a business travel startup and um, it was challenging because even kind of power business travelers are only in the market to buy business travel a couple to a few times a month. And so how do you stay top of mind for them? And, and it's, this, so I think growth and marketing work together with product to figure out the ways that you kind of keep yourself relevant over a longer period of time so that 
when that business trip comes up or, you know, in our case, when somebody thinks about writing a letter to their recruit at boot camp, they inherently know to come to us. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about the model that's in particular interesting to me was the referral part. Uh, so um, I, I think to the importance of word of mouth and electronic word of mouth in particular is growing still. Um, yes. How do you as a growth strategist, growth hacker, ensure um, that people refer the product to others in a positive way? Yeah, I think referrals are just an absolutely amazing channel. Um, the thing to keep in mind with referral loops and kind of referral strategies is that it's hard to get the referral flywheel going until you've got some sense of product market fit or some volume and velocity. So for example, if you're just getting started and nobody knows about you and you don't have any customers, it's probably not worth spending a lot of time on, on mm-hmm. referral, um, you know, a referral strategy because you just don't have any volume, but um, you know, and it, In a case of a company like Sandbox, um, we have hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands of people using our product, you know, every week and our MPS score is incredibly high and, and, you know, people tell us how much value is being created. And those people want to, um, you know, they want to spread the word about Sandbox because we can give them some value in the form of um, either free credits, free letter credits in our case, or, um, you know, or they can look at it uh, more intrinsically and, and realize that the more people that get into the product, the more support their recruit who's at active duty or who's at boot camp is, is going to get. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're able to play into that user psychology to kind of incentivize our, our users to share. And I think the thing with, with referral loops is, Um, you, you need to think through kind of the value that each, the, each person's getting. So what is the referrer? So the, the person who's making the referral, do they get anything in return? Why, why are they going to share this? Like what's in it for them? What value does it create yep. for them? It's also just important though, to explain to them what value the recipient of the, you know, of the referral gets. So the, the referee, what value do they get? Um, how are they going to benefit by learning about this system or product, mm-hmm. right? And I think when you can align double incentives where you've got a really strong and compelling uh, kind of set of values that um, are added both to, you know, to each side of that equation, you can build a really strong uh, growth loop there. And, uh, and so we, you know, the way we do it at Sandbox is we'll incentivize our um, letter senders after they send a letter to, to spread the word. And we'll do that at different points of the life cycle. So it's not just after, excuse me, it's not just after you sent a letter, it maybe at other times as as well. Um, But I think there's, uh, there's a bunch of different ways to kind of, you know, leverage incentives and user psychology to to drive it. Um, My guidance is to, you know, is to put somebody in an ownership position of the referral Mm -hmm. channel. and run a bunch of experiments because you really don't know what's going to work. And so we we're constantly AB testing, um, you know, different calls to action, different uh, incentives and, and different ways to really drive that referral yeah. loop. But it, it could be a very powerful channel. And so from the company's perspective, do you think it's um, um, it just works better if the person shares uh, the, their positive experience with the product or service with many people at once, for example, via a social media post or, 
just to a few people to maybe closer connections? Um, the word yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and, and I don't think a lot of people think about that often. I think the assumption is that you want to get somebody to share this referral out to the world um, and get as many people yeah, in right. as possible. What I've seen both in B2C consumer companies as well as um, uh, B2B companies is that um, at least in my experience, it generally worked better when there's more of a peer to peer engagement happening. Um, it, of course, it's it's helpful to kind of share something socially, and that will help from a brand awareness and a, and a high level top of funnel standpoint. But if you're really going for activation and kind of revenue driving tactics through referral through building referral loops, I've seen the more peer to peer, so the one to one outreach work a lot more effectively. It just works better. And so, in the case of like you know sandbox, you, you there's no value created if if you refer somebody in who, for example, doesn't know the recruit or has no connection to the military or, you know, there's just, there's just not a lot of value created there for somebody outside of the network. But let's say that you're, you know, you're the mom or dad of, of a kid who is going through boot camp, and, um, and you've got an uncle who's really close with that kid. And maybe the uncle knows that, that the kid's at boot camp, but they haven't sent letters and they haven't really engaged with them opening up that referral loop for mom or dad to, to reach out to the uncle directly to incentivize the uncle to use the platform that works amazingly well. Yeah, right. But it's, so it's much more peer to peer. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's just come back uh, to the term growth hacking for a bit more. Um, the, the hacking part, I think you touched upon that a bit before, but the growth hacking part, the, the hacking part suggests that the discipline is really technical. Uh, is that correct? Do you see growth hacking as sort of a science, uh, as something that is based on you know proper calculations, uh, quantitative tests, and uh, well thought through tricks? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes and no. And so I think... You know, I think growth is is fairly broad. Growth hacking is it's fairly broad, and I think there's there's a lot of strategies or experiments that you can run that just aren't really that technical. So right, like like um, running multivariate tests or you know extensive testing in paid channels, you know looking at SEM keywords to bid on and and you know building landing pages and doing some of those things. Like your your general marketer um, or entrepreneur or founder. Uh, can or product person can can do those things. I think where it gets a little bit technical is when you're starting to look at um, retention specifically and, and cohort analysis. And so when you have questions around how effective is your experiment working for a, a you know a percentage of the population within your website mm -hmm. or product versus the control, so all of the rest of the people, that's where it starts to get a little bit tricky and. You know, fortunately, there's some really, really good tools that you can use to kind of do all that hard technical work for you. So, for example, mix panel or segment um, or amplitude or, you know, Optimizely, Google Optimizers. There's a ton of products out there that will help you kind of be more scientist, be more scientific without having to be right. more technical. But if you really are running true kind of granular uh, control versus variant a B testing and, and experimentation, and you want to understand the impact on 
on a you know on a on a subset of the users, then you have to do uh, cohort analysis, which implies that you're going to be able to separate one group of users from another, at least in terms of how you measure the impact on them. And so from that standpoint, yeah, like when we're doing that level of test, um, you know, that's where a data scientist or a data analyst or an engineer uh, will come in. And so I think it's, it's generally smart to have somebody on the team that is fairly technical that can help you pull the numbers, run, you know, um, you know, run queries against the database, be able to look at things kind of scientifically, statistically, um, and, and go from there. But it, it's not inherently tactical. I mean, you can be a non-technical marketer and, and be a pretty good growth hacker, right? Like you could be a good growth lead without having a technical background. You may have to learn some tools and things like that. You may need to dig in, but it's not inherently technical. All right. And so if uh, perhaps some of our listeners are interested in becoming growth hackers themselves, uh, and maybe they're active in the broader field of marketing right now, what would your advice be to them? Like, what should they focus on um, to delve into growth hacking more? Yeah, I, I love that question. I think so. If you're on the marketing side and you want to be more of a growth hacker or a growth lead, um, I think you need to start getting a little bit more of an understanding of the product world. And so, you know, if you're on the marketing side, uh, start spending more time with the product team and the engineering team to figure out what needs they might have from a, from a product growth standpoint. Um, if you're on the technical side or if you're a product manager, I would urge you to start spending a lot more time with the marketing team and figure out what they're doing to drive leads and to drive acquisition and, and what they're doing from an awareness standpoint. Again, I think these fields are converging um, more than they're diverging. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, there's not enough companies that are looking at growth holistically um, from a from a full funnel, including the product funnel uh, standpoint. And so where I see companies get themselves into trouble is when marketing is disconnected from product and engineering. So I think if you're, regardless of kind of which side you're in, um, you need to spend time with people across the organization that are in these other fields that maybe you don't have as much exposure mm -hmm. to. And so one of the things we do um, and that I've done both, you know, at Sandbox and, and other companies is, it basically pair people up cross-functionally uh, to work together. And whether that's getting engineering involved in helping marketing kind of pull reports or having a, you know, a product manager own a whole subset of experiments uh, where they have to collaborate with the marketing team and possibly the engineering team to kind of execute on the idea. Um, it, it really forces you to kind of look at it um, collectively. Now, if you're, you know, if you're just kind of looking to get into the industry um, and you're working at a startup and maybe you don't yet have a growth team, that's okay. Um, what, I would, what I would do is I would come up with some hypotheses and some experiment ideas that, that you can run and pull together a quasi team to execute. It, this doesn't have to be a formal process. You know, if, you've got, if you're a marketer and you've got a product manager and one engineer, you can spend 10% of your time doing growth. You need to start with a hypothesis. And, um, and that hypothesis really defines um, what you think you can get out of an experiment. And you need enough executive buy-in to enable you to kind of take on a tiny bit of risk when you're putting these experiments out there. Because an experiment means you're changing something, which means you could have a positive or negative impact on the numbers. 
Um, but so get some buy-in, but it doesn't have to be this complex, you know, full team. It can be you with, you know, one or two other people that form a little squad and you come up with four or five hypotheses that you, you know, you start to experiment on over the next few weeks and you report back on the data on a weekly basis. And, mm -hmm. and that's how you get started. You just got to do the great. Work. Yeah. I think that was really useful advice. All right. Um, I'd love to cover one more association that I had with the term growth hacking. And that's, um, well, the term growth hacking to me, it just implies that the growth might be a bit unnatural and maybe faster than it would have been without some special tactics and strategies. Um, so in your experience, have you, have you ever, um, cooperated with a team who maybe was driving uh, the growth too hard? Or maybe faster than they should have been. Yeah, I have actually. Um, so, and, and I think that that's you know, I think different companies have different models, and and you know, different levels of fundraising enable you to do different types of experiments and spend different amounts of money. But yeah, I have been in some situations where, um, you know, where we were in a in in more or less a pre-product market fit uh, state where we didn't have a lot of organic kind of natural drivers of growth happening with the product. And we were just spending money to, to try to acquire customers. And, um, you know, we were able to drive really strong growth, but it, it wasn't really, it wasn't really sustainable growth. Um, now, again, this depends on where you're at as a company in, in this particular case, um, we were spending a lot of money to acquire customers and, we thought that we had built a good enough product to, to keep those customers around once we acquired them. So we were justifying the spend or customer acquisition cost based on having a pretty strong product that we thought, you know, if we get them into the product, we get them using the product, they experience value, they're going to come back. And it took us a lot longer to figure out that how to get them to come mm -hmm. back component. So, yeah, and I, and I see this over and over and over and over again. I mean, there was just a scooter company that went out of business. They spent all their money on, um, on I think it was Facebook and Google ads. And it's not uncommon for um, high growth, you know, potential startups who've raised a lot of money to, to just go out there. And before they've got some of the organic kind of more natural um, growth loops in place to just go out and spend a bunch of money and acquire customers, um, or to do some kind of hacky thing, whether it's, you know, hijacking Craigslist or, you know, doing various tactics that may drive, may spike growth for a short period of time. The problem is if you don't have product market fit, it's unlikely that you're going to A, bring in the right users and B, be able to keep them around without spending more money down the road. So yeah, it, it's, it's tricky. I think that, you know, that's, that's where you really gets into some of the sustainable growth stuff that, you know, I talk about this a lot, which is having a, just a comprehensive, honest look at your product, where you're at in the market and figuring out what channels and strategies you need to be using for you at that point in time, um, that are, so yeah, that are that, more sustainable. Um, probably the key element of sustainable growth is to, um, be honest with yourself when it comes to assessing your position on the roadmap of your product. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think it's, it's part that, and it's part. So, so if you're raising money or you've raised money, you know, what you're telling investors is you're going to, you're showing them this hockey stick growth. 
Um, and you know, most founders do it. Um, I've been guilty of doing it in the past. Um, and, and you're really pumped up about your product or your service and, and you think it's going to grow and you, and you really believe it. The problem is, is that it almost always takes longer than you think it's going to. And it's almost never a situation where one or two channels, uh, makes you a winner. Like you almost always have to be everywhere it, like working in all of the channels, spending time and energy and maybe money in all the channels, putting resources on all those channels, whether it's organic growth or paid or anything else. Right. And so, um, I think you really need to come back to, uh, looking at your metrics and, and not just looking at some hypothetical future version of your company where it's just, everything's going amazingly well and you're just growing like crazy. It's like, you need to put in the work and spend the time to cultivate the methodology within each channel that you think might work. And a lot of that's going to come from experimentation. It's going to come from, you know, running tests and, and failing a bunch. It's going to be through probably spending some money and, you know, driving growth from different areas. And, and eventually over time, you start to figure out what the retention looks like based on the tactic that you used and the channel that you, you know, that you drove growth from, but th those things take time. You know, it's a lot more complex than just spending a bunch of money on Facebook ads and driving people to your site. Like that's one way to do it. But if you don't wrap that in a bigger strategy where you've got a much more comprehensive view of how you're going to get and attain and acquire and kind of retain customers, then, then you'll quickly burn through that channel and, you know, and, and you'll hit yeah. diminishing returns. Well, really quickly. So, so what are the signs, uh, the most common signs of um, an unhealthy growth? I think I, and it, this depends on, on, on the business and it's somewhat channel specific, but, you know, I think one of the best ways to measure your kind of the, the health of your company is, is by looking at your retention metrics. And so, if you're an enterprise SaaS company, this might take you a couple of years to figure out, right? You're not going to have retention metrics on, you know, as an enterprise SaaS company in month one, you just won't have it because you don't have enough volume. If you're a transactional consumer app, you'll, you'll get there pretty quickly if you've got thousands of users. But um, what I often will do is, you know, you've got your kind of your, your, you know, your, your leading indicators of potential success. So you're, traffic to your blog, your number of signups, the number of emails that you get, the open rate of your activation emails, the click-through rates. Then you've got, um, you know, the purchase funnel and the purchase flow. Longer term, what you want to start doing is looking back over, you know, 30 days, 60, 90, 180 days and seeing what's happening with your ability to keep those customers around. And this is where some of the cohort analysis and, and some of your retention metrics will come in. And this is hard to do if you don't have a way to look at the data. Um, you can do a little bit of this through Google Analytics, but really you need better tooling at this, at this point to look at it. But you, know, you want to look back over these various intervals and see, is my retention rate increasing over time? Meaning like, am I, you know, if, if you get the same number of people in, any given month. So if you get a thousand people in every single month, um, from month, you know, zero through 12, what percentage of them are coming back over time? And is that getting better over time? And if that's not getting better over time, wherever that growth curve starts to flatten out in terms of retention, that's probably where you need to look and see, okay, well, 
Did our product change? Um, did something get worse? Did we change our pricing? Um, in the early days, it's probably not going to look amazing, right? Because you, you haven't figured out, you're not a product market fit. So you haven't figured out what that retention strategy looks like. So I think retention is the key, but it takes a while to look at that. But as a founder or as an early stage employee, you really need to start owning retention metrics as early as possible, even if they're not pretty and figuring out how you impact those retention metrics over time. Um, if you never figure that out, then, then you'll right. run out of money and you'll go out of business. So it, you it always happens. You just time. mentioned the role of a founder. Um, and you yourself are both a growth hacker and an entrepreneur, right? Uh, maybe you could, you could tell us a bit more about your yes. old entrepreneurial projects uh, in a second. But my question is, um, do you do you see the process of growth hacking differently when you are in the role of an owner or a founder rather than a marketeer? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a, that's an interesting. I've never thought about it from that perspective, but I, yeah, it is, it is different. Actually. I think when you're a founder or a co-founder, you inherently have to wear a bunch of different hats. And so, you know, you, you might be as worried about making payroll as you are about your growth because both of those things are, are really critical. You know, if you don't pay your people, then, then they're gone. And if you don't grow the company, then you go out of business. So as a founder, you have to be hyper aware of all of these things that are impacting your day to day. And it's mm -hmm. really, really, really challenging. Um, as a, as a growth person, you generally have, a, a, you know, you generally have ownership just around some of those core metrics. And so, yeah, you may have a lot of responsibility, but you're, you're likely not the one that's looking at the bank account every day and, or, or talking to investors, you know, you're really focused on trying to grow the business. So it definitely changes. Now, that doesn't mean that as a growth person, you're not going to be under immense pressure. You might be. Or as a founder that you won't have time to spend on growth. You probably will. But founders it, it just have a different... As a founder, you just have so many different um, you know, things that are, are tugging at you 24-7 that growth is one of many challenges that you're going to have. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. It, it, um, it is slightly different. So would you say that the, the difference, for instance, lies within uh, how you see um, sustainability of the growth and how sustainability is important for you? Yeah, I mean, I think founders, you know, founders are interesting, and I've been in this spot myself where you're where you're trying to you're acting as a you know as a growth person and you're doing sales and you're talking to investors and, and you start to get this and you believe in, you know, you believe in yourself and your product and, and you get this sense of like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grow this thing no matter what. And then you get into the weeds and it's, it's just really hard and it takes longer, uh, you know, it takes longer mm -hmm. to execute. Um, so I think the, you know, the key is that whether you're a growth lead coming into a startup or you're a founder, um, you really have to take a longer view of this stuff. You know, I, I do a lot of advising mm -hmm. um, of early stage companies and, you know, I'll do growth advising and, and they'll pull me in and, and, you know, the, the founders will have all these ideas yeah. on how to quickly grow the company. And, you know, I'll look at those ideas and, and they're definitely worth trying, but the reality is, is that 
pretty much anything that you try in the early days is unlikely to be the thing that's going to, you know, that's going to propel your company forward for the next five or 10 years. And I see a lot of founders get into, uh, you know, into a spot where they're very impatient with driving the metrics and they put a lot of pressure on the marketing Mm -hmm. team or the product team or the growth team to just grow, grow, grow. But you really have to take a multi-channel longer term view, at least in my opinion of, of growth and do the things that are right for your audience and for your company to drive that growth. And because it, it almost always happens where if you're looking at kind of hacky things, or if you're not spending any time on organic and you're spending all of your time on paid, or you're spending, you know, all of your time on organic, but you've mm-hmm. never figured out a paid strategy, you're missing out on an opportunity to do kind of, you know, full life cycle, you know, omni-channel marketing and to win, you're probably going to need to get there at some point. So my guidance is, is to take a, you know, take a longer view of this stuff. If you just hired a growth person and they're not instantly delivering results, but they're, you know, but they're improving the process by which you're doing growth. So they're, you know, they're writing content and they're building activation strategies and they're, and they're trying to, you know, acquire customers, cut them a little bit of slack, right? Give them a little bit of space and time to breathe and, and to get into the role a bit. Um, I just see over and over again that, especially early stage companies, they they think that hiring a growth person is going to just radically change the whole business. And it's really not how it happens. Right? I've seen growth people get fired over and over and over again because they're, you know, they're not able to drive fast enough growth for an early stage company. And it's like, you got to give it some time to breathe. You know, you need to put a bunch of stuff out there. You need time to measure it. You need resources to get it done. And then you need to look at that retention-based view to see what's working or what's not. And I think that's where entrepreneurs and founders in particular need Mm -hmm. to kind of take a step back and look at the whole process by which they're trying to drive growth and being a little bit patient and forgiving of themselves and the team to be able to give them the time that they need to get it done. That doesn't mean that you come in and, you know, somebody works 20 hours a week. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is that you have to take a longer view of this stuff because what you do right now is, you know, it's important, but it's unlikely going to be the thing that you're doing long-term that actually impacts your yeah. So you've got to take that. Well, um, hypothetically, I can see a conflict of interest there, right? So maybe when a growth marketer is assigned or a growth hacker is assigned to a certain case and uh, he knows that he will only most probably stay with the case for, I don't know, half a year or so. So he wants to make uh, the numbers grow as high as possible within the, those six months, but the, the founder will stay with the product or service indefinitely right definitely yeah that's i think that's a risk and i think that um you know i think that there are uh growth people out there who do uh you know do pretty good work but hop from one gig to the to the next gig and implement a playbook or a strategy that's not really sustainable and then you know don't give it time and then leave so i think as a founder though you're going to have other employees that you know, have a similar mindset. So I don't think it's just growth people that, that do this. Um, but yeah, I think the, you know, then probably the best way to, to address the, that challenge or problem is, um, is by trying to set realistic metrics and working as a founder, working with the growth team and with the product team to define and then refine those metrics. So track your metrics on a weekly basis, track them against some real goals that you have, and they might be stretch goals and that's okay. 
And then, you know, give yourself the time to make the course corrections that you need. So if you're a founder and you hired a growth person and that growth person completely failed on the big paid acquisition strategy that you hired them for, but you learned that, you know, that's going to take longer, but there, there might be an organic approach here that kicks in. You know, you learn something um, by working with this person. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at it, right? Where you as a founder are working with and helping to cultivate the, you know, that, that growth Mm -hmm. mindset for the team. Um, It's not one person that's going to change it. It's going to be your product continuing to get better, adding value, and then, you know, getting yourself in a spot where, um, where people are finding you pretty Mm -hmm. much across, you know, across the board. It's not one tactic. Um, So many of our listeners are actually digital entrepreneurs or startup founders themselves. So um, I think it would be really helpful for them to just sum up some of the key learnings they should take away from this interview. Um, So if you were to give them a few tips about growth hacking for their own products and services, it would probably be be about um, retention and then realistic metrics and then probably the long-term perspective or would you add? Yeah, I think, yeah, I would. I mean, I think that there's, um, those are all really solid. And I think when you're thinking about a go-to-market strategy, um, you know, you really, you can't, I don't think it's fair to rely on, on one or two channels to, to drive your growth. Um, I, I really would urge you to get out and experiment in multiple different channels. So for example, uh, you know, with Sandbox, we, we had never really done anything in Quora or Reddit um, before maybe six months ago. And those two channels have become super viable for us. Um, not because they're just driving, you know, tons of revenue, but we're able to acquire um, customers and, and email addresses and things like that at a relatively low cost per lead, which even if it doesn't result in revenue right then becomes part of our funnel longer term. And so um, even as at a you know, company at, at scale like us, we, we constantly have to look at new channels, emerging channels, um, channels that you know, might be going away, channels that are becoming saturated. You know, I think um, many growth leads or many digital entrepreneurs are looking at Facebook and Instagram, and, and they think that if you get somebody who's just amazing at Facebook and Instagram, game over, we win. Well, the problem there is that those channels are getting more and more saturated and more and more expensive. And so it's, it's highly likely that there's another channel that's a little bit smaller that you could do really well in. And that might even be, you know, if you're a, a B2B company, it might be doing speaking engagements to try to figure out where your buyers are hanging out, right? It might be being a thought leader. I mean, there's things that you can do that don't scale that um, that may pay off in, in the long term. And so, again, I just think that you need to look at growth very, very broadly. Now, dive in and build, you know, build a hypothesis and a set of experiments within different channels. But but do the work to basically get yourself out there in front of different channels and, and don't assume that one thing is going to work. Um, the other bit of advice that I have for founders and, and entrepreneurs is that um, resist the urge to get frustrated when things are not going as fast as you want them to. Um, you know, one, one of my companies, um, that I'm on the board of now is a B2B SaaS platform. 
Um, and we had pretty good growth. We raised some money. Uh, we went through an accelerator um, and uh, we were getting a lot of pressure from, um, you know, from our stakeholders to, to just do more and build more stuff. And we talked to our customers and we we're like, hey, if we do more and build more stuff, will you, will you buy more? And they said, yes, we absolutely will. Well, it turns out we built a bunch of new products and they got used, but, but our customers weren't willing to pay more for them. And that put us in a really, really tough spot because now we're supporting this whole enterprise suite of products that's getting fairly low utilization and making us no additional money. There's a lot of overhead there. Then when you kill those product off, people get mad because they're using them, but we can't justify it because we can't support them or grow those products. Right. And so, um, we had to make the really tough decision to basically kill off all of the new stuff that we had worked on for like a year and go back to the basics. And over time, uh, you know, the company slowly and then more quickly started doing better and better. And we took this very, very, very long view of, uh, of the market. Uh, we saw competitors pop up, um, take some of our market share, and then a year later go out of business because they couldn't sustain it. And all the while, we were just a lot more patient with our growth and with our metrics, and it slowly continues to grow. And that's okay, right? It's not a billion-dollar business. Um, it's, you know, it's more of a lifestyle business, but, you know, it, it provides work for people and it drives value and, and that's okay, right? Like not everything's going to be a rocket ship. So I think if you, if you get to a point where you realize, you know, this thing, that's my passion that I'm working on, I thought it was going to, you know, I thought we we're going to be at a hundred million in, in revenue in three years. And if you haven't raised money, you actually might be in a pretty good spot. Just take the long, you know, take the long view and see how much you can drive it over the next couple of years. Um, because the explosive growth, the stories that you read, you know, online, they're just not usually based on reality, right? I mean, if you look at any of the startups that are, you know, billion dollar companies right now that look like overnight successes, they're not. I mean, they're, they're just not. Mm -hmm. They've been around for five or 10 years. Um, and, you know, they've gone up and down in terms of how they've, how they've done. So yeah, it's, it all comes back to that kind of longer term view. That's just my opinion. Um, you know, I, I also, I have not sat in a, you know, a, an extremely high growth startup before that has, you know, gone to that hundred million mark. So it may be different for folks that are in those situations, but my experience has been you know, a little bit smaller scale, but, um, you know, but a pretty good experience overall in terms of kind of driving yeah. longer. Well, great. Growth. That was uh, a very insightful interview, I think, backed with great tips for um, both marketers and founders. So thank you very much, Greg, for uh, joining us and uh, for your time and effort. Great. I really and I would like uh, so to wrap this up with um, some holiday wishes. So uh, to all our listeners, just um, have to have the most beautiful holiday season and uh, we'll talk soon in January 2020. All right, that was it for today. This was uh, Craig Zingerlein about growth hacking. Thank you again.